I'm Kate. And I'm Anna. We're about to give you some spooky shit, people on their absolute worst behavior, and everything in between. This is Blood and Booze. Smells so good. <laughs> it's rolling. Okay. All right. Hello, our beautiful listeners. We are back today with episode five. Mm-hmm. And so we actually have talked about this. This is going to be a two-parter. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a two-parter. I'm going to start and then um, Anna's going to get into hers. But this is a two-parter because I am in over my head. Not only only that, but it's because the story that I chose is um, insane. And I don't want to skip out on any of the details that make it so crazy. So... I'm very excited. Yes, I'm excited for you to figure out, uh, to find out what this is. Yes. Also, the drink that we are having today is a pickle martini. And I know that sounds fucking amazing because Mm -hmm. it is. And uh, heads up, we've already had... We've already had one. We have um, had one. We pre-gamed a little bit, but it, I mean, it's just a basic martini with vodka, um, dry vermouth, um, pickle juice of your choosing. I used Clausen because it's very garlicky. Um, and you stir it with ice and pour it in a martini glass and cut up a pickle spear and throw that in there. Yep. I didn't know I liked martinis before this martini. Oh, baby. <laughs> so good. <laughs> oh, that's delicious. Okay. (laughs) So I am going to be discussing today the Cecil Hotel in Los Angeles, California. Okay. Okay. All right. So the Cecil Hotel is located at 640 South Main Street, Los Angeles, California. It stands at 14 stories tall with 700 rooms. It opened on December 20th, 1924 as a budget hotel by William Banks Hanner, Charles, Charles L. Dix. (laughs) Wait, what year was that? Uh, 1924. 24. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, So Charles L. Dix and Robert H. Shops. Um, it was designed by Lloyd Lester Smith in the Beau Art style, which is um, like French neoclassism mixed with uh, Renaissance and Baroque elements. Um, and it was constructed by W.W. Payton. So in 1924, it cost $1.5 million to build. <clears throat> so, I mean, in that time, oh my yeah, God. In, in 24. Um, but the three hoteliers, they actually invested $2.5 million. Um, so it boasts an opulent marble lobby with stained glass windows, um, potted palms, and alabaster columns. Like, the lobby is gorgeous. Yeah. Um, so within five years of it opening, the U.S. plummeted into the Great Depression. Yep. 
Um, even through this, the hotel remained a fashionable des- destination um, through the 40s until Skid Row became overpopulated with transients. Um, as many as 10,000 homeless live within f- a four mile radius of the wow. hotel. And you've got this millions of dollars worth of uh, building and tons yeah. of homeless people. Yeah. Skid Here Row. Skid Row is really dangerous. Really rough. Yeah. But it wasn't completed. And in 2011, a section of the hotel was rebranded as Stay on Main with separate reception during the day. But they shared facilities with the other part of the Cecil. And to this day, like, they still have Stay on Main. Okay. Um, in 2014, the Cecil was sold to New York City hotelier uh, Richard Bourne for $30 million. Oh, my God. After his purchase, Simon Barron Development acquired a 99-year ground lease on the property. The president of Simon Barron, Matt Barron, he um, said that he wants to preserve the historical architecture and details of the Cecil, uh, but plans to renovate the hodgepodge work that's been done over the years. Uh, This renovation was put on pause indefinitely due to COVID. Yeah. Um, So in February 2017, the Los Angeles City County voted to deem the Cecil a historic cultural monument because it is representative of an early 20th century American hotel and because of the historic significance of its architect's um, body of work. Like, it's a fascinating place. Um, On December 13th, 2021... The Cecil Hotel reopened as an affordable housing complex operated by the Skid Row Housing Trust. The facility will provide affordable housing um, for 600 low-income residents. Cool. Damn, about time. Just saying. Yeah. Okay, so now we're going to kind of get into the... the reputation. The fucked up part about this. Yes. Why we're we talking about it. <laughs> exactly. Why this hotel is on our podcast. Um, so the Cecil is known for not only its beautiful lobby, but also violence, suicide, and murder. Okay. Yes. The first documented suicide was that of Percy Ormond Cook. He was 52 and he shot himself in his room on January 22nd, 1927, uh, after not being able to reconcile with his wife and child. The place just opened and this guy killed himself there. Yeah. The next recorded suicide was in 1931 when W.K. Norton died in his room after taking poison capsules. Oh my god, only four years later? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So over the years, 13 suicides have occurred in the hotel. Do you think it's because it was so gorgeous? People are like, where do I want to (laughs) go to kill myself? Oh, maybe like the most gorgeous place I could go to. This is, I I want to look at this when I die. Like yeah, this. I want to be in the marble castle. Like, right. um, so in addition to the suicides, um, the Cecil's history includes other violent and disturbing happenings, 
It also became a notorious rendezvous spot for adulterous couples, drug activity, and a common ground for prostitutes. What? There were even rumors that Elizabeth Short, who is the Black Dahlia, was seen drinking in the lobby the night before she was murdered. Oh, my God. But... This was never confirmed. It's still just kind of a rumor. Yeah, yeah. Um, in 1964, a retired telemarketer named, quote, Pigeon Goldie Osgood, um, who had been a well-known and well-liked long-term resident at the hotel, was found dead in her room. She had been raped, stabbed, beaten, and her room was ransacked. Oh, my God. It's terrible. Yeah. To this day, her murder is unsolved. They have no clue who did it. Wow. Um, and now, in the 1980s, the Cecil was the temporary residence of Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. the Night Stalker. <gasps> what? Yeah, he lived there. So, Ramirez, uh, he was a regular presence um, on the Skid Row area. In L.A. And according to a hotel clerk who claims to have spoken to him, Ramirez is rumored to have stayed at the Cecil for a few weeks. Um, he engaged in most of, if not all, of his killing spree while staying there. Really? Yes. Um, he reportedly stripped off his bloody clothes in the alley outside of the building before climbing the exterior stairs um, to his residence in his bloodstained underwear. Okay. Okay. Oh, and yeah. that's blowing my <laughs> mind right now. I know. Yeah. And then uh, so on August 30th, 1985, a group of L.A. residents spotted him in the street and prevented him from escaping until police arrived and arrested him. So, yeah, he was the Night Stalker. He there's a documentary about him, right? Netflix documentary. I, I th I'm pretty sure. Um, but yeah, like he would break into well, he actually wouldn't even break in he would only go into houses whose doors and windows were unlocked yep. if they were locked he took that as like oh i'm not welcome but if it was unlocked in his like psychotic crazy brain he was like oh that means they want me to come in and kill them yeah <laughs> oh yeah and there were a few people that 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 escaped him yeah so and he actually um i guess he had like some really terrible dental issues mm -hmm. and his teeth were like rotting out of his head. Oh fuck. And people would say that they could smell him. Like, <gasps> that gingivitis baby. They could no, get you like, from across the room. Like just like straight rotten. Uh, uh, rotten. And I'm pretty sure one of his nicknames was like stinky Richard. Really? <laughs> Dude, oh man, really funny. Like as much as that makes me sad, like fuck that guy though. No, um, yes, total piece of shit. In uh 1989, Ramirez was convicted of 13 murders and sentenced to death. Although he would ultimately die of cancer in 2013. I didn't know that. Another serial killer, Austrian Jack Unterweiger. I'm, I think that's how Unterweiger? you pronounce it. Unterweiger. Um, st <laughs> stayed at the Cecil in 91, um, possibly because he sought to copy Ramirez's crime. So a copycat. 
serial killer. Um, while there, he strangled and killed at least three prostitutes, um, crimes he was convicted of in Austria. Did I say Australian or did I say Austria? Austria? Is it Australia? <laughs> Which one is he? I feel like James Franco when he's interviewing Iggy Azalea. <laughs> I haven't seen that. What is James Franco doing interviewing I, anybody? I don't fucking. Okay. so Because he's asking her, like she's talking about being Australian and he keeps getting confused with like Austria. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. I digress. They're so similar, you know. <laughs> In 2013, the Cecil was the focus of attention yet again due to now this is honestly and I know like Ramirez, his whole thing was like very brutal and terrible. But this one is um, more so like sends a chill down your spine, just fucking daunting and creepy so in 2013 the cecil was the focus of attention yet again due to surveillance videos of canadian student elisa lamb uh, going viral they show her acting erratically in the elevator repeatedly pressing buttons seeming as though she's hiding from someone Uh so she's like and I've watched the videos. It's oh, terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Um, she's in this elevator and she's pressing the buttons repeatedly. And then she'll duck behind the doors, like where the where the buttons so are. So you can't see her. Yeah. If you're and opening it. Yeah. She's like flattening herself. And then she'll real quick like stick her head outside of the elevator and peek around and like look. And then she'll go back. Like it just it's she's really, hiding. It's really creepy. Um and then she starts walking like in and out of the elevator and you can see her like walking past. So yeah, the videos, they will definitely send chills down your spine. Um, I suggest you go, we can watch it. It's it's really terrifying. Um, So these videos were actually the last that anyone ever saw of Elisa for the next, for the next 19 days until they found her body in the water supply cistern on the roof. So they know what floor she got off of, though, right? Do they know where she got out? So the floor that she was staying on did not have surveillance cameras. Fuck. So, like, these videos are the last that they have of her. And they don't know, like, after she left the elevator, they have no clue what happened. They just know what happened on that floor. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like I said, the floor that she was staying on, they, it didn't have security footage, um, which left uncertainty as to whether her death was a homicide, um, until Lamb's sister, um, she revealed that, um, or to the detectives that Lamb had a history of not taking her medication. Okay. Um, among her possessions left at the hotel were several prescription medications, um, untouched. Mm. And Lamb had previously been diagnosed with an extreme form of bipolar disorder and was known for displaying similar psychotic behavior in the past when undermedicated. Okay. So police ruled that her behavior on the elevator was caused by a paranoid hallucination as she climbed into the tank herself, believing that she was in danger. Oh my God. 
So police then speculate that perhaps when she entered the tank, the water level was high enough um, that she could have gotten out. But as guests and residents used the water, um, the level could have decreased, leaving her trapped in the tank without a way to get herself out. Fuck. Wait, how did this happen? Explain. She climbed. So the police think that she climbed in there herself. To the water tower on be, top of the building? Aunt, she went to the roof and she possibly, you know, in her hallucinations, thought that something was chasing her. And oh, so she climbed she climbed up to the roof. Oh, the poor girl. Went to the water cistern, climbed in. She and- could get herself in, but she could not get herself out. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. Yep. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. So they also speculate that she undressed while in the tank, attempting to remove the clothing clothing that was weighing her down yeah totally it could make you heavy yeah so and when they found her yeah she was nude almost yeah um la county coroner ruled her death accidental due to drowning with bipolar disorder being a significant factor um of course there are speculations that the reason for her death is that she was being haunted by the spirits of the cecil i mean the place has kind of got a rep already I, yeah, I don't know what to think. I don't know. I don't know. Um, So some other facts about the Cecil. Um, The Cecil was actually the inspiration for the Hotel Cortez, an American horror story hotel. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. So they based that whole season off of this hotel. Um, which is my favorite season. Oh yeah, of American really, Horror Story, really it's the best. Um, and go Lady Gaga, maybe look at that fucking. Dude, oh, oh she God. is a fucking beautiful creature. Oh. In that season, they based, um, I guess the the builder or creator of the Hotel Cortez. Yes, the guy who built it. <laughs> um, they based him off of. H. H. Holmes. Kate. I know. <laughs> You're going to freak out. Because <laughs> the story that I'm going to tell today is H. H. Holmes. I know. I saw a glimpse of it on your laptop. Did you freak out? <laughs> I was did you like, freak out a little I bit? I did, yes. Like, I'm freaking out. Yes. Oh, my God. I cannot believe you're... Th- I, as soon as you said you were talking about a hotel, I, I was like, my shit's fucked. You're, you're gonna not, not going to believe this. Yeah. But, oh, my God. The fact that they based the creator of the Hotel Cortez on American Horror Story after H.H. Holmes. For good reason. That yeah. shit is insane. I don't know much about H.H. H. Holmes. I will tell you too much. I don't know much. Um, Also, I know. Fucking blows my mind. Um, So Ghost Adventures, they investigated the Cecil Hotel in 2021. Mm -hmm. And they experienced several instances of paranormal activity. Yeah. Um, During their two-night investigation, the team retraced Lamb's steps, including um, the elevator where you know the disturbing security footage was captured yeah um and this is a quote when from zach bagans 
Jack <clears throat> with his uh, Ghost Adventures beard. <laughs> when you are walking through those floors and nobody is there, even with the lights on, you can feel these spirits move through you, around you. They're watching you. They, and then he also says, There was just something about this building. While the team experienced physical afflictions, including um, unexplained scratches, it was a moment of paranormal activity um, that had the biggest impact on Bagans um, while he was investigating. He's the bald one, right? No, the, the, Zach is like the main dude. Like He's the bag. bedazzled cross t-shirt. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The, the goth Ed Hardy. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Um, so he was investigating uh, alone in one of the hotel rooms where serial killer Jack... The Austrian Australian <laughs> uh, Unterweiger What's stayed that? in '91, and Bacon said that he witnessed the bathroom water faucet just turn on by itself, and it was one of the kind where it wasn't motion censored, like you had to twist the knob. Yeah, um, it is said that the building has attracted darkness since the beginning for no known reason. Um, but the known satanic worship that occurred inside the hotel has definitely added fuel to the fire. Known satanic worship? Mirez. Oh, yeah. He was very much into the... He, he was, like, putting those signs in people's houses, right? Like, so on Ramirez, the walls yeah. and shit. Ramirez, like, did all of that shit in his room. Um... And I feel like with the hotel, there, like I said, for some reason, it was just almost kind of picked to be this magnet for dark energy. Yeah, something about it. Some, and I, I don't know, maybe if it's something during the construction of the building that we're unaware of. Yeah. Um, but it, it's just a magnet for really bad shit. So this was only a few um, decades after the story that I'm going to tell. Very few. So I'm talking 1980s, 90s. This is the 1920s, 30s when this was built. Right? 1930? 24. 1924. This was not very long after. This was 20 years after he was like dead. At max. Yeah. So like I said, I don't know if it's if it's something with the construction of the building that happened, like maybe that, I don't know, like maybe these three hotelier, like tycoon guys were into some dark shit and put dark shit into the building of the Cecil. And that's why it attracts such terrible things. And then on top of that, Ramirez, you know, doing his thing in his room, mm. just attracted more all i know about life is that positive energy in in your life is a great thing and it attracts other positive people but when you get that negative energy in a place mm -hmm. it really does tend to bring that on like in it will it will just perpetuate yeah itself. and this is very random um squirrel moment <laughs> but it kind of has something to do with this um if anybody has a doormat at their house saying like welcome or come on in blah 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 take it away y'all you got an invitation i should take, <laughs> take it away from your front door don't 
ever put anything outside of your house that says like, come on in or welcome because you are literally inviting any and everything everybody to come into your house. Any type of energy in. to come into your house. Yo, imagine if a vampire looks at your door and they're like, oh, okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Welcome. Okay. This is totally fine. Like Ramirez. Oh, yep. Yep. You never <laughs> know who's out there. Yeah. So don't do that shit. If you have a doormat or anything or a flag that says welcome. Yeah. You might be a target for yeah. somebody. Yeah. And uh, put a sprinkle of brick dust across across the entryway to your house. Is it like a clay thing? Or like- yeah. And if anybody has ill intentions towards you, they won't be able to cross the threshold. And if they do, then they'll start to act weird in your house. Okay, babe. Are you ready? I'm ready. It's a lot. I cannot believe I know. the stories are lining up like this. <laughs> this happened last time, too. This is weird. I know. I'm going to tell you about H.H. Holmes. Oh, I, oh I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you about H.H. <laughs> Holmes, who is America's first known serial killer and the mastermind behind the Myrtle Ca- Murder Castle in Chicago. He literally was the architect for this murder castle. Oh, I'm so ready. <laughs> I closed my laptop and everything. I got my pickle martini in hand. So I'll tell you why I picked the story, though. It's because Jose's mom, she lives currently 30 minutes outside of where this man was born. Whoa, really? Yes. Yeah, she was. she's living 30 minutes from where he was born. And he was born in Gilmanton, New Hampshire in 1860. Uh, under the name Herman Webster Mudgett, like under the name, I, of course, because it Herman Webster Mudgett. Herman Webster Mudgett. Yes, he was born a mama's boy. That's right not a real person. <laughs> yeah, Herman Webster Mudgett, mama's boy, Herman. His mom was a a devout religious woman, and his dad was this postmaster that was a little bit strict, but he was super into science and stuff. He, he made perpetual motion machines when he was a kid, uh, which is like probably a super new, cool thing to learn at the time. It's like fucking fidget spinners. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but no, it's, it's actually really cool. Like he, you know, he was a smart kid and, uh, he's super interested in science. Um, he was fascinated by the whole thing. He used to make scarecrows for fun. I don't know if it was for he fun. He fucking but, would. You know, he would, he would, wouldn't he? Um, <laughs> Yeah, as a teenager, his uh, big life plan was to marry a rich girl. Big aspirations. Yeah, he really wanted her to pay for for the medical school. So at 17 years old, he married Clara A. Levering. And uh, eventually they had a son named Robert. 1882, at the age of about 22, he enrolled in medical school. And... Um, a couple of sources have said that his wife, Clara, paid for it, but um, he's also shown to have had some financial struggle at the time. So I don't know how much she actually paid for, but you'll see that over his whole life, money is such a thing for him, an obsession, and it is perpetuated with a bunch of other circumstances. But uh, yeah, so he's enrolled in medical school. At, at 22 years old. And during his studies where he worked on cadavers. I don't know cadavers, about you. 
but I'm feeling 22. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Oh, no, please don't be. So during his studies, he worked on cadavers almost every day while he's, you know, he's in university. He's working on, uh, you know, on bodies. He's he's got um, studies in the morning. He's got bodies in the afternoon. You know, every afternoon he's working on the on the dead, dead, he's on the corpses. But <laughs> he learned while he was there that the janitor was the one who bought, purchased the bodies from people. And while he was purchasing them, it wasn't always legal per se. I would assume not. Yeah, especially during the era when paperwork was limited. Wait, so what year is this again? I'm sorry. He was born in uh, 1860 and okay. he goes to school in 1882. Okay. All right. So 1882, you know, I was researching earlier. People still don't have like normal IDs. Like people don't get IDs, like paper IDs until like the 1920s. So this is kind of an interesting thing that I haven't had the depth of research to find out like what how are people identifying themselves in this era because it was a lawless time it was <laughs> yeah <laughs> anything goes honestly that's yeah. what it seems like yeah. um yeah so he's in medical school janitors getting all these bodies he's not always like asking where they come from because he knows they're not legal necessarily so this is when he starts to kind of associate bodies with dollar signs. And, uh, you know, kind of being a monetarily driven person is very, it's kind of a theme for him. So him and his lab partner, who's named Lake Hawk, which is a... Excuse me? Lake Hawk. Lake Hawk. Lake Hawk. I didn't believe it at first. I, looked- I, thought, I thought you said Lay Lake Hawk? Lake Hawk. <laughs> yeah. Can't find a picture of this guy anywhere, but his name is Lakehawk. Um, they became very close. They were, you know, over bodies together every single day. Yeah, they were very like, intimate. They were butterfly kisses over the corpses, you know, <laughs> like they were right there together. Tonguing and uh, over they were coming up with a scheme. This is his first big scheme mm. that they're coming up with. That they are going to acquire three corpses from the dissecting room per se and uh one would appear to be uh, uh laycock one his wife and one his child and after uh faking the murder of his wife and child laycock would pretend to kill himself and uh be replaced by that that third corpse you know he would fake a suicide attempt all to collect the uh insurance money that Honestly, they would have taken out brilliant yeah, especially at the time where it's like yeah. documentation is not digital. They we don't, don't have, have all that shit. DNA testing. Right. You don't have any of this. So secret genius HH Honestly, very smart. Yes. And <laughs> yeah. you will see that he proves to be an incredibly intelligent person with incredibly horrific intentions. And it only gets worse. So again, uh, sorry if y'all could hear me swallow. I fucking hate that shit. <laughs> I'll edit, I'll edit the swallows out. It's like uh, my fucking Popeye. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he the the whole point was for uh, Herman to be the beneficiary of the insurance, and he would share it with the family. But this was just like something they were talking about that 
you know, maybe something we could do. We could like, maybe what if we, you know, made all this money? Cause he was in school and medical school was like expensive at the time, like $200 a year, which is apparently a lot. Yeah. And, you know, back then. Yeah. It was a lot. Yeah. So he is quoted to have, have said that rich people have it really good and that the rest of us are like, you know, yeah, you're trash. You can't go to medical school. If you're rich, you got it real good. It's too easy. And uh, this guy um, almost didn't even graduate. What? He, so he was like almost the bottom of his class. And the faculty had to vote two times for whether or not he could get his medical license. I They should have said no. I know, you know? <laughs> I don't know how much difference it would you know, make. I feel like looking back, they would be like, hmm, maybe we made the wrong decision. Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably Because, I mean, he's on the podcast, so obviously he did something fucking terrible. But um, after the whole incident, like, uh, you know, coming up with the plan that they were going to get all these corpses, replace them with the corpses, get the insurance money, it's maybe implanting this idea of murdering in that entire families. Okay, I could kill a whole family. Uh, I could get that, like, ruminating a little bit. Uh. So, uh, so he left his wife, moved to Moore's Forks, upstate New York, where he worked as a teacher because he had to, and uh, he got engaged, which shortly after his engagement everyone found out that he was married already and he was shamed big time and everybody knew he was a fucking liar a piece of shit and he was like okay well this fucking sucks <laughs> it's like okay i'm going to dip i'm i'm moving again sorry guys yeah he shit well he didn't move again oh no <laughs> he didn't move again as far as i know shameless he didn't move again. <laughs> But it really, he's on like people's shit list for a second there. I, I doubt that was good for him knowing yeah. his, like how his brain probably Especially worked. like back like, in egotistical, that. like, yeah, everything's falling apart. Well, in that uh, time period. It was so that shameful. Was, yeah. So shameful. Nowadays, it's kind of just like, oh. Whatever. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nobody cares. But yeah. No, at the time, mm, bad shit. So the negative attention was hard on him. He started to lose it a little bit. But he was also, uh, his financial situation wasn't good. And he ended up selling both of his horses and uh, 85. This was like 85-ish. Uh, he just do afforded basic necessities because he, he probably would have starved without this. But in his desperation, he wrote to Laycock saying that he wanted to hunt for corpses and hoping that their old scheme might get him some cash that they came up with in school. So he realized it would be too risky and near impossible to retrieve enough corpses to replace the whole family and decided to fake his own death for the insurance money. So he's he's going to pretend to kill himself. So in order to make this work, Herman made a plan and put it into action. You'll see that he's very smart with his plans. He's really good at this. First, he sent uh, Clara divorce papers. His and uh, his wife. Yeah. yeah, his first wife. Quickly married Myrta uh, Z. Belknap while she was in on the scheme. Yeah, so he told her that she, he was going to fake his death to get insurance money. And uh, while in Minneapolis, he insured his life for $20,000 and made her the beneficiary. So he's got him a little partner in crime. He's got a partner in crime right now. Yeah. 
But you know, not the first one because the other guy was an original Bonnie and Clyde kind of deal. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Probably not the first, but you know, the, the probably one of the first that we know of. So, uh, the plans, uh, flaw really was that it re- re- relied upon a, them getting a body into the school morgue that looked like him and finding a body that looked like him proved to be nearly impossible so is she just oddly shaped it was probably just how long they'd been dead maybe and you know probably other factors like that that you know this made it not really look like him or you know maybe it was just luck so yeah, he made that plan. Kill. He's gonna make himself be dead. Replace his body. He's got a life insurance policy out for twenty thousand for him uh, going to his wife. And uh, whenever he realizes it, it's gonna be difficult to get a corpse that looks like himself because he's checking every day, see if something has popped up that looks like him. Has a, is there a body that looks like me? Maybe it could be this this person or whatever it's it's no for weeks and weeks and weeks and this whole time he's having to hold a real job at a drugstore and he i'm sure hates that Mm. but um it puts him into this severe depression and eventually he tells a police officer that he's thinking about killing himself and that he's going to kill himself and the police officer puts him into an insane asylum outside of philadelphia so he gets depressed uh-huh. and thinks about suicide yeah. because it's hard for him to find a body. Yeah. Pretty unbelievable, right? What? Weird. <laughs> and I did so much research. It was taking me forever to research this story because I'm digging into the details right. like this. Yeah. So I couldn't figure out what asylum he went to. Mm-hmm. And I figured out that by this time period, pretty much every state had at least one or two asylums. And with this time period, a lot of stuff is not documented. Uh, so most of it. Yeah, it's it's very hard to, uh, you know, find information. Yeah. And during, the stories that, yeah. are, you know, come from this era are really interesting, but verifying facts very hard to do. A lot of it is rumor, hearsay. Yeah, hearsay and rumors. and But there is a lot of documented evidence on him, particularly because he gets a lot of lawsuits, and we'll get into that. But yeah, he goes to the asylum. He's there for two months. And that whole time, he is thinking to himself, like, wait, like, uh, you know, maybe I just, you know, want to stab people and strangle them to death. It's, he's perpetuating these thoughts of how he can murder people and gets into this sort of... So he's recognizing his rage. Yeah, okay. kind of what it seems like. And I did a lot of research on what happens in asylums, but there's not a lot during this period. It's only into like the 19, like 30s to 50s that electroshock therapy is introduced. It's not... This is pre a lot of the weird torture shit that you hear about in asylums. So I think he's treated like a normal person here themselves because, you know, he's probably just talking to somebody instead of being tortured. Um, so he gets out after two months after he has thought up this plan of how he's going to make this money because that's all he cares about. And he thinks to himself, okay, well, nobody who's dead is going to fit 
the bill, but maybe a fresh corpse will be better instead. So okay. he devises his plan. He is going to get his best friend what? at the time and kill him. What? Yes. So he writes to his best friend, R.C. Laycock, <laughs> and he lures him to his Chicago hotel. I'm sorry. <laughs> but he poisoned him uh, in a Chicago hotel room with a laudanum. And he put his body in, in the hotel tub, which I even did research on the ice because how do you get ice at that time? But you could buy it from the hotel. So you had to pay for it, but you could get ice. Um, so Herman thought that Dr. Cox's face had a similar silhouette to his face. And uh, he dressed the body in his clothes and there he left some kind of ID papers on him and he dumped him. And they found his body with those papers that identified him. And... Uh, Eventually, he collects this $20,000 life insurance policy. He pulled it off. Pulled it off. Yep, he absolutely did. Uh, so $20,000 richer. Uh, Herman and uh, Murda, they moved to, sh- moved to, they moved to Chicago. They moved to Chicago. <laughs> uh, where he became H.H. H. Holmes. <laughs> okay. So Holmes opened a barbershop and drugstore while construction of the additional stories began above him on this property that he bought with that money. So $20,000, it got him um, what he would come to call the Inglewood Flats eventually. And then eventually after that, it would be referred to as the castle. Much like that club in Tampa. I like that. Shit. <laughs> we still, we have to go together. I want to go so bad. Oh my God. It's just You want to so go back. I know you've been. I want to live there, but. <laughs> <laughs> so while he's at this barbershop, he hires furniture mover Wade Warner, who he somehow convinced to pose as an inventor of a glass bending machine. And it's all in order to fool investors for him. So it's all money, manipulation, all that for this guy. So he hired Wade also to build a glass furnace in the basement, which unknown to him would be his final resting place. What? Yep. Fucking crazy. So 1890, Holmes secured two checks from Wade made out in smaller amounts. And he added... A lot of zeros to these checks, which ended up making him thousands of dollars. So he ends up killing Wade in the basement to prevent him from finding about out about this check fraud. That's what they say, but I honestly think he killed him just because yeah. he wanted to. I mean, to. he seems like yeah. the type to just... Yeah, he took advantage of him, and he knew he was going to kill him. He knew he was a person... He, that's what I think. He, he knew he could kill him, mm-hmm. but... He put a bunch of zeros on his checks, made a bunch of money off this guy. Holmes murdered Wade in the basement and burned his body in the furnace that he'd built until there was nothing left, not even bones. So he killed the guy that built the furnace and burned the guy's body in the furnace that the guy built. Yes. That is so fucked up. I know. 
So around this time, he also began to uh, dig up bodies, sell the bodies to medical schools, and sell the coffins separately. So he's making a profit off of the bodies that he's digging up and the coffins. This is not the first time he's done this. He actually did it while he was in medical school to help pay his medical school bills. Yeah, he's a busy bee. He's busy. He's got lots of projects. Yeah, (laughs) he stays busy. (laughs) He is... Uh, you know, American dream, baby. We're going to build yeah. it from the ground up. It just takes a lot of people. Yeah. Boy, that sounds like the fucking upper class, doesn't it? Like, you yeah. know, you got to make a line of money, but a lot of people have to suffer <laughs> just for you to get there. So his next victim was uh, Charles Cole, and he killed him by bashing his head in with a pipe, which rendered the corpse almost unusable by the buyer so his skull was so fractured that they almost had no use for buying the corpse so he he took a significant loss in profit there and he paid attention to that he had to change his methods because you can't go bashing these bodies you can't bash the bodies if you're gonna sell the bodies (laughs) you're damaging the merchandise it's gotta be a realistic kind of natural death if they're gonna buy them you gotta make it realistic it can't be a bludgeoning yeah so he he figures this out and, uh, you know, all the while he's working at this barbershop drugstore, the stories are being built on his castle that he's having uh, constructed. So this building is devised by him in a way that when you walk into it up to the second story, you are so easily lost that you can get trapped in any number of rooms. You literally lose your position of where you are he built a maze which ends up being just a murder factory for people he is luring you in like a spider web almost getting you lost so that he can take advantage of you murder you and take your body and sell you so in this hotel when he's first got this construction going he has an office and in his private office that only he can get to or take you to, he has, well, what I can tell is his first victim in the office is this banker, super wealthy banker. And Holmes has a uh, um, a vault installed in, in his office where he has rigged it so that gas will go inside and suffocate anybody who's in it. So he has gas that he can access to the vault, turn it on, kill whoever's inside. He gets his banker, Rogers, to come up and he tells him, hey, you have got to sign these checks or else. And then he tortures him by both starvation and by making him smell the gas, which makes him super nauseous. So that in the starvation, I don't know how long he was in there. I have no idea. I don't know that anybody knows how long, but it's just this is Holmes's recount of it. He was up there nauseous, starving. He eventually signed all these checks and uh, he $70,000 is what he makes Whoa. from this man. Yeah, it's so many. He killed so many people. It's, he killed Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers? What a dick. So uh, additional floors were carefully planned by him. Holmes hired three different contractor companies uh, to work on different sections of the design so that he would be the only one who really understands the layout. Okay. So Holmes rented out the bottom floor to small businesses, 
Second and third floors were used as hotel rooms and uh, as well as that maze that intentionally disoriented people. So unsuspecting guests coming in, not really understanding what's going on and getting lost. So bodies could be moved unseen through his office suite to a private bathroom of his and down a chute and then pulled into this dissection room next door, which continued to a closet with no bottom in it where the bodies could be dropped onto a platform. He could then go back to the bathroom through a secret door by the tub, which opened to a staircase down to the platform where the body could be sent down to another chute where the body would land in the basement. And he rigged all of this with balancing all these contractors so that he could build his perfect factory for killing people. I am... I'm speechless. Yeah, this shit is insane. He was able to use all of these people to build this vision of a hotel, business, whatever. And it was just a killing factory that he raked. I am fucking speechless. I think this is a great place to stop. I agree. Um, Keep you on your fucking toes. <laughs> Yo, yeah, I was just thinking that. Yeah, this is the God, Jesus. Um, I like don't even know what to think right now. Yeah. My brain is like spinning. Oh my God. I saw some 3D models of this and it's, it's weird. It's weird. Okay, guys. Well, we hope that you tune in uh, next week for the second part of this, of this story, H.H. Holmes. Um, also, again, if you want to send in your own stories um, or case suggestions, our email address is bloodandboozepodcast at gmail.com. Um, we love y'all. Hope you had a great week. Yeah. And drink a pickle teeny. Yes. Yeah. They are, they're fucking, fucking fire. Delicious. And I'm not going to lie. I'm pretty toasted right now. <laughs> I'm toasted. <laughs> I'm trying to tell y'all about H.H. Holmes. I promise it's going to be a good story. We're sitting here drinking our pickle teenies and eating uh, apples and peanut butter. What is that combo? I might shit myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine with it. <laughs> thank you, guys. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. We love you. And we'll see you next time. <laughs> 